Well, for those of you who do not know me, I'm Ron Castens, and I'm very grateful uh, to be asked to, to preach again uh, for us today. My family and I have been uh, part of First Christian for a little over a year now, and uh, I've been uh, the director of the ministry leadership program at Milligan College uh, this past year. And uh, we're very excited not only to be here at FCC, but to be at Milligan and so grateful for the, the partnership that FCC has with Milligan and in many different ways, but especially the ministry leadership program as we're helping to equip men and women to, to be leaders in God's church on into the future. And so thank you for your, your part in that and participation. Uh, it's just great to be, uh, to be here again with you today in, in this role. Now, I want you to think for a moment as, as we begin uh, about the funniest movie you've ever seen. Just kind of go back through the memory banks and think about maybe the funniest movie you've ever seen. See, I did this extremely scientific survey on Facebook. And, uh, and uh, I asked people about the funniest movie they had ever seen. And, and one person said Grumpy Old Men. One person said Dumb and Dumber. Someone else said Talladega Nights. And someone even said The Apple Dumplin' Gang. I remember seeing that years ago, but, but yeah. Now, using precise research methods of eyeballing it and guesstimating, here are the funniest movies, though, uh, that came out of my survey. Blazing Saddles, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Vacation, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and then Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Those were ones mentioned multiple times through my scientific survey. Now, maybe your list would be different, but no doubt, no doubt, when you think about funny movies, one or two popped into your mind. Now, I also asked them, who's your favorite or maybe funniest comedian, right, that, that you know of? And, and again, people in my Facebook survey gave several different names. Showing up most often were Robin Williams, George Carlin, Stephen Wright, Jim Gaffigan, and the comedian getting the most responses was a guy by the name of Tim Conway, right? Who truly, he was a funny, funny man. He really was. Some of you go home and Google him, right? Because you have no clue who Tim Conway really is. <laughs> Downstairs, they were all out Googling in the middle of the sermon. Who's Tim Conway? Again, maybe your list would be different, but no doubt, when you think of funny people, funny comedians, somebody came to mind. Who comes to your mind, however, when you, when you think of a joyful person? Because they're not the same. When I ask you to think about a joyful person, who comes to mind? See, for me, I, I don't think about someone who could always make me laugh, who's the, the funniest person I've ever known. For me, when I think of a joyful person, I think about Tim and Joan Lafferty. Two dear friends of mine who live with such joy. I worked, worked alongside Tim for most of the 17 years that I was in ministry in New Hampshire. Tim's oldest son, Pete, was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy when he was about three or four years of age. Duchenne is a progressive disease of the muscles where the muscles eventually just stop working. It's in males and, and it's fatal. People with, diagnosed with Duchenne usually die in their late teens or 20s. And because it's genetic, after Pete tested positive for Duchenne's, they tested Pete's younger brother, Joe. And he too tested positive for Duchenne. 
And so back to back, Tim and Joan learned that they would bury both of their sons around the time they should be taking them to college or perhaps attending their wedding. And by the time I first met Pete and Joe, they were in motorized wheelchairs, and you have never seen two people squeeze as much out of life as Pete and Joe. Tim and Joan told me that even though they knew their boys wouldn't live a long life as we might think of it, they wanted to give their boys the best life possible in the time they had with them. And it was twice that I walked with them through the valley of the shadow of death. Joe died at 20 years of age and Pete at the ripe old age of 31. And I remember sitting with them in their home on each of the different days that the boys died. And I'm telling you, there was tremendous sorrow. Tim, in fact, told me on one occasion that they began to grieve the loss of their sons on the day they heard the diagnosis. So there was plenty of sorrow. But I'm telling you, friends, underneath the sorrow and tears, there was an undergirding of joy unlike anything I had ever seen before in my life. So much so that to this day, when I think of a joyful person, I think of a couple who buried two sons. Who would have thought? Well, the Apostle Paul, that's who. I'm convinced of it. We've met Paul over these past couple of weeks. He's the missionary, the church planter who wrote letters to specific churches in specific situations. And we've looked at two of his letters, Galatians first and then last week Ephesians. Today we're looking at his letter to the church, his letter known as Philippians. He's writing to the church, the Christians who are in this town called Philippi, located in what is now modern day Greece. It was a Roman colony. This is a church, in fact, that Paul planted. He started this church. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. And it's a church, it's a group of people who Paul dearly loved. It's a very warm letter, very personal. Paul knew these people well, and he loved them, and they loved him as well. And what strikes me most about the letter of Philippians is Paul's obsession with joy. I mean, Paul starts the letter in typical Paul fashion. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to all God's holy people in Philippi, grace and peace to you. It's typical Paul. And then look at verse 3. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy, with joy. And we might think, well, why? Why, Paul? Why do you pray with joy in verse 5? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began this good work, he'll carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. That's why I pray with joy, Paul would say. Now, for anyone who thinks Paul may be over the top and how much he cares for these people, look at verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. Now, if you were here two weeks ago when Ethan preached on Galatians, you remember the tone of that Philippians, very different tone to this particular letter. It really centers on his relationship with the Philippians and his love for them, and it is just just dripping with joy all the way through. For instance, down in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul says that regardless of a preacher's motives, 
when Christ is preached, he rejoices. And, and he'll continue to rejoice because of their prayers and the Holy Spirit's work. In chapter 2, verse 2, he encourages the people to make his joy, to complete my joy through your unity. In verse 17 of chapter 2, he says that even if I am just a side dish to the entree of your service and faith, then I'll be glad and rejoice with you, you Philippians. In fact, in verse 18, he goes on to say, you Philippians, you should be glad and rejoice with me as well. Epaphroditus is a man who shows up in the book of Philippians. He's a man whom the Philippians sent to visit Paul and take provisions to Paul and, and, and to take care of him. But Epaphroditus himself became ill and he almost died. And now that he's doing better physically, Paul's going to send him back to Philippi. And Paul says, when he comes, verse 29, you are to welcome him with what? With great joy great joy going on in chapter 3 verse 1 Paul says rejoice in the Lord and in verse 1 of chapter 4 he says therefore my brothers and sisters you whom I love and long for my joy and my crown stand firm in the Lord and in verse 4 rejoice in the Lord always and just in case they haven't been paying attention I'll say it again rejoice it makes you want to say Good grief, Paul. You know, can you not get enough of joy? And apparently not, because down in verse 10, he's rejoicing greatly because of their concern for him. I mean, you get the idea. Joy here, rejoice there. And the idea behind rejoice is simply to express joy, right? To express joy. And Paul can't, he can't get enough. He's got the joy, 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 joy down in his... Right, you know the song. You should have sung with me. Thank you. <laughs> but here's the question. Where does this joy come from? It's one thing that Paul's a joyful person and he's always encouraging us to rejoice and such. But why? Where in the world does the joy come from? Well, let me tell you first two places it's not coming from. One, Paul's joy is not coming from his circumstances. Not from his circumstances. In fact, any idea where Paul is, where he's located while he's writing this letter? Did you pick up on it during your reading this past week? It's in chapter 1 of Philippians. He's in prison. He's in prison. Look at verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul is in chains. He's in prison for Christ. He's preaching the good news of Jesus. He's, he's advancing the gospel and, and it lands him in prison. Now, I don't know about you, but in my mind anyway, joy and prison are two things that don't necessarily go together. Now, you may be in prison, you may be joyful, but isn't it just ridiculous 
for those two things to be mentioned together? And, and if that wasn't bad enough, Paul even goes on, verse 15. He says, It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing I am put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. And look at this line, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. In other words, Paul is in prison, and there are people outside of prison that Paul can't do anything about, and they're running around stirring up all kinds of trouble for poor Paul, and they're doing it in the name of ministry. And yet, (laughs) Paul is joyful. How in the world? How in the world? Because joy has nothing to do with our circumstances. Nothing. Joy does not come from our circumstances. Circumstances, they may make you happy. For instance, I love ice cream. It makes me happy. It is this external thing out here that impacts me from the outside in and makes me happy. When the Boston Red Sox won the World Series last fall, that made me very happy, very happy. This event that happened from the outside impacted me and made me happy. Now, in case you're wondering, this baseball season, I'm not happy. In fact, those of you who are Tennessee volunteer football fans, how you feel today, I have felt the whole baseball season long. (laughs) Just want you to sympathize a little bit with my plight. When I birdie a hole in golf or even par it, I am happy. When sevens and eights start showing up on my scorecard, I am not happy. See, happiness is driven by circumstances, but not joy. Joy flows underneath and is not impacted by external circumstances. In fact, later in chapter 4, Paul kind of echoes this theme in verse 12. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need, but I also know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. Paul says he's been in need before in his life and he's been hungry, but other times he's had more than enough. And either way, Paul says, I'm content. There is a reality underneath that circumstances cannot touch. Paul can be content and joyful because those things flow from the inside out and they're not dependent upon our circumstances at all. See, some of you I know are sitting here today and you're hurting I know a man who was let go from his job because his organization is financially struggling and so they had to let some people go. Spoke on Friday with a man who has some health issues and he's hopeful that the new medication that he's on is really going to make a difference in his life. And I said, how's it going? He says, I, I just don't know yet. I know some parents who are concerned about the choices that one of their children is making. And friends, isn't it great to know that the joy of the Lord can be present even in the midst of terrible circumstances? Others of you here are are convinced that if only your circumstances were different, then you would be joyful. 
If you got that job that you really want, or if you had a different boss, if you could only find Mr. or Mrs. Wright, if you could only get pregnant, if only the doctor's diagnosis comes back favorable, if only you had a different spouse, if you could only see your grandkids more, if you could go on that dream vacation or buy that dream home that you've always wanted, if only, then you'd be joyful. No. <laughs> you might be happy for a time, for a time, but that's not joy. Deep and lasting joy that flows underneath, undergirding everything, does not come from our circumstances. It never has and never will. Well, joy doesn't come from Paul's circumstances, but neither does joy come from his credentials. See, titles and awards and certifications and accomplishments and diplomas, they don't produce joy either. They don't. In fact, Paul tells us this in chapter 3 of Philippians. He talks about it in the form of boasting in the flesh, he calls it. And Paul says, if you think you have reason to boast in all of your accomplishments, I have even more. In fact, verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I was persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Paul says, no Israelite can compare with me in terms of a prestigious ancestry and accomplishments and awards. My credentials will outshine all of you, Paul says. But that's not where my joy comes from. In fact, Paul goes on a few verses later, verse 8, to say that these things truly are nothing more than garbage or rubbish, dung, in fact, the Greek word here is really strong, and it's not something I'm comfortable saying in church. So we'll let that go. Paul says, all those things are just garbage to me. My joy doesn't come there. And friends, there's nothing wrong with pursuing degrees and, 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 and diplomas and, 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 and credentials and things of that nature. There's nothing wrong with you know, aspiring to other jobs and titles and positions in a company. There's nothing wrong with that, but our joy doesn't come there. Joy doesn't come from titles or business cards or letters after your name or the corner office. You're not going to be more joyful as the senior VP than you were as the, just the VP. Credentials don't produce joy. In 2005, Tom Brady was interviewed on 60 Minutes. And at that point, he had already won three Super Bowl rings. And yet, this is what he said. He said, I think there's got to be more than this. Just think about that. I mean, how many, even NFL players, much less the rest of us, would, would, would just love to even play in a Super Bowl, much less win one, much less three? He says, I think there's got to be more than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. You can have all the awards and all the accomplishments and all the fame and money and everything that goes with it. That does not produce joy. It doesn't come from credentials. So where does joy come from? Well, as simply as I can state it, joy comes from knowing Christ. This is what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ 
Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. To know Christ is where joy comes. Dallas Willard said this, he says, to know Christ in the modern world, in other words, to know Christ in the world where Jesus isn't walking around physically with his disciples, to know Christ, to know him in your world, is to live interactively with him right where you are in your daily activities. This is the spiritual life in Christ. See, to know Christ is not just to know about Christ. It's not just to know facts about Christ up here. It's to live interactively with him right where you are in your daily activities. Paul had this interactive relationship with Jesus in his ordinary life, and it produced a joy in him that had nothing to do with circumstances. It wasn't dependent upon his credentials. And as an apprentice to Jesus, Paul learned how to humbly die to himself. He learned how to value others above himself. He learned how to take on the very nature of a servant. He learned how to put the interests of others ahead of his own. He learned how to pray, knowing that when he did, Jesus would walk right up to him and talk with him. He learned how to live without grumbling or complaining. Paul knew Christ. In fact, he wrote, for me to live is Christ to live. And the more he learned to live as Christ, the more joy flowed in him and from him. Even with opposition stirring up trouble, even in times of plenty or times of want, even in prison facing the possibility of death. In fact, there's a passage in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, where Paul lists out all these hardships and struggles that he's been through in ministry. And then in verse 10, Paul writes that he was sorrowful, but always rejoicing. And that's the beauty of joy. Not dependent on circumstances or credentials. It can flow and undergird us in any and every situation, even sorrow. In fact, I wonder if we could really know joy if there was an absence of sorrow or hardship. Because it is in the shifting winds of sorrow and pain that the bedrock of joy shows itself a sure foundation. And joy comes from knowing Christ, from living interactively with Him, even in the face of sorrow. And uh, this was never more clear to me than a week ago. For a week ago yesterday, a few hundred friends and family gathered in Maryville, Tennessee to remember and celebrate my mom. My mom was born and raised in Maryville. She met and married my dad, who uh, God then called into ministry. In June, they celebrated their 57th anniversary. And throughout all of those years, my mom served side by side with my dad as he preached in churches in North Carolina and Tennessee and Kentucky and Florida. And she was a loving, vibrant partner in ministry all of those years. Suffering with congestive heart failure, we thought her body was going to finally give out in December of 2017. She, she was in the hospital for three months and on a ventilator twice, and, and yet she rallied and she made it home, even though she continued to grow weaker and more frail. She went into home hospice care on July 12th, my birthday. 
And then she died on Thursday morning, August 22nd. We've been driving down to see her once or twice a week for the past couple of months. And in between, you're waiting for the phone to ring. And it's weird if you've been through something like this. It's weird that that when the call finally comes, even though you're expecting it and waiting for it, it takes your breath away. And last Saturday, standing in the church, his friends and relatives came by to greet us and offer their sympathies. There was plenty of sorrow and plenty of tears. She was a wonderful woman, and I miss her terribly. And yet last Saturday, even in the midst of grief and tears and sorrow, there was great joy. I mean, even standing up to speak during the service, I was deeply sad, and yet and there was a joy in the room that was so tangible, I could almost reach out and touch it. My brother and I conducted the service. One of my mom's granddaughters read scripture. Another granddaughter played the piano. Her four grandsons and two sons-in-law were her pallbearers. It was a perfect day. Sorrow and grief and tears swirled about. They ebbed and flowed, and they still do. But the bedrock foundation of that day was a joy that comes from knowing Christ. You see, circumstances and credentials will not bring you joy. True and deep and lasting joy only come from knowing Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us, your love for us. Thank you for the power of your spirit that moves and works in us regardless of circumstance. God, help us to look for, to long for that joy that only comes from you. And God, help us to live interactively with Jesus moment by moment, day by day, to know Christ. And we pray this in his holy and precious name. Amen.